Hello, and welcome to the KE Report. I'm your host, Shad Markwitz, and I'm speaking today with Eric Wetterling, also known as the Hedgeless Horseman, runs the hedgelesshorseman.com. We'll put a link to that down below so you can follow along with Eric's work. And Eric, it's always fun having our weekly chats and rants about the resource sector. We've been talking for quite a while off mic, just about a number of different things. But I think one of the topics that keeps coming up is with this low sentiment in the space, the inability of investors that may be positioned at the wrong time or in the wrong companies, although there's not many that are doing great, and they're sitting on paper losses. So maybe they're down 50%, 70%. Heck, there are some companies that are down 90% or more. And so there's some people sitting on some substantial losses on paper, not in reality, because they haven't pulled the trigger yet. But we were talking about the cyclicality of the resource sector. It doesn't matter if it's oil and gas stocks or lithium stocks or uranium stocks, rare earth stocks, gold and silver stocks. It doesn't matter. Everything moves up in big burst tire and then has corrective periods that are very boring or sometimes wear people into the ground only for yet another explosive rally to happen and do it all over again. And it's that cyclicality that people are not used to if they're traditional investors in the general stock market. So maybe just speak to how you're coping with it, how you're talking to investors to wait for the gains because after the pain comes the gain. Right. I mean, I think this is one of the most fascinating things really with investing, especially in the commodity sector. I mean, you cannot find a single commodity sector, look up, you know, the juniors or companies, whatever. It's like, what do they all have in common? They always crash now and then. Like, it, it depends on, you know, how big the company is, what sector there it is, yada, yada. But they always crash, like 50 to 90 minus, somewhere along those lines. What happens every single time? If a company is still around, what happens every single time? Or let's put it like this. What happens to the sector every, every single time? It rallies like crazy for the, I don't know, next few months or few years. So that is a, like a 100% track record that after every crash, especially the bigger it is, there's a big fat rally. It has 100% track record. And that's why, that's the only reason why Pierre Lasson says, and he was referring to the gold space, was like the, the gold mining sector or the gold sector is the easiest sector because it always crashes and always rallies. But for some reason, if you again look at the charts, the runs any commodity sector goes on after a crash is so big that it's like a black swan event. So what can we take from that? That literally at every top and every bottom, uh, mean reversion is like a black swan. So at every top, the market is not pricing in any chance that this sector is going to go down and go into a bear market anytime soon. And then it starts doing that. And at every bottom, it's pricing in very, very, very low chance of there being a, some kind of rally anytime soon. I mean, it's really ridiculous because if at face value one just looks at this commodity space and everybody's heard the idea, buy low, sell high. Well, there aren't, there isn't really a, any sector that goes higher and lower than the commodity space. So it's like when you think about it, it's like how do we even lose in this sector if we have a five to ten year time frame at least? Because Sure. I mean, every cycle can be like, you know, three, four years. I mean, this is a long bear market, for example, but it's like five, 10 years. There's no way one shouldn't have been able to buy very low. And there's almost no way it's not going to rally afterwards. Well, there is no chance it's not going to rally afterwards. It always does. 
Well, Eric, I can imagine people listening to this and rolling their eyes or groaning at their desks and thinking, I've been patient. I've waited. It's been a situation where the mining stocks have kept going down while AI is taking off and cryptos are taking off and all these other sectors are lighting fire. So there's this opportunity cost of being in the sector. And I wish I never would have got in it. And as soon as I get back to zero, I'm out of the sector. What would you say to people like that? Because there is some legitimate pain. There are people sitting on, again, these paper losses. Is the right strategy just to sell as soon as they get back to zero? Well, I don't think so. And I mean, I, for better or for worse, my first entry into the mining space was in 2015. And I, I probably told this story a bunch of times. I thought I was buying low when I bought late 2015, buying, buying cheap. But my portfolio went down 54% in the first four months. That is, I mean, if people are down 50, 60% over the last three years, that's not even close to being down 54% in four months, not from a compounding perspective. Okay, so I mean, in hindsight, it looks like, oh, I mean, easy to buy. I mean, it was low. Anybody can see it in hindsight. At the time, it didn't feel too good. But I was just focused on one thing. Everyone said it was cheap. I know what this sector can do because it fell from somewhere, right? It fell from the 2011 high. And if you look what happened before the 2011 high, you can go back and see, oh, it bottomed in 2000, went on an 11-year bull run, then crashed. And again, go and look at any single commodity space. Go look at the barren gold mining index. No crash lasts forever. And there's not a single crash that is not followed by a major rally. So it's like the expectations right now, because it's so dead, you can have one guy selling your favorite junior and it's down 10 to 20%. One guy. Yoshmo in, you know, I don't know, Alabama, whatever. And it's like, it's hard even for one person to accumulate these shares right now. So it's like, I don't think people have any idea what can happen when a sector is totally bombed up. Because, okay, I think a majority of, let's say, the followers I have added over the last three years, they bought in at the 2020 highs. So most people have not even seen uh, full cycle. Most people have never even bought low once and seen what happens afterwards. It's easier if you have been buying low since 2015 and have seen, let's say, multiple rallies to the tune of several hundred percent. I know it can happen because I've seen it happen a bunch of times. And some would argue that it's still been only bear market rallies. And I know we've talked about this. There's like you have the Rosbetes, you have recruits, etc. They're looking at this and saying this is like you know going back to 2000 the early 2000s because that was the end of a major major decade long perhaps bear market and what followed was a 11 year bull run so i i think the low people's expectations are so low right now that it feels like a hundred percent rally is almost a miracle but still we're seeing some signs now that some of these juniors i mean they're popping 30 40 percent on very low volumes. So imagine if it's like two people buying some of these stocks up 30% in a day or two days. Imagine when it's 20 people or 200 people or 2000 people. So it's like, I think it's going to be bigger actually than people think because it shows it's just getting more and more of a big uh, black swan. Well, Eric, we'll keep following along for whenever the bottom does come. But I think it's fun sometimes just to look at the psychology around investing in the resource stocks and the cyclicality around it to help people that may be feeling pretty lousy about the decisions that they've made, but not realizing that after the storm, 
comes the calm. After the darkness comes the light. So there is a cyclicality to this business. When it will shift, nobody knows. But God, I hope it shifts soon for everybody's sake that's listening. But let's also talk about a jurisdiction that's kind of coming into its own right in time to catch the sector. And that's really the mining stocks in Sweden. We've talked about a couple of them before this call and decided just to dedicate this episode to some of the Swedish companies right in your backyard. And the first one that we'll talk about is Goldline Resources, traded on the TSXV under the ticker GLDL. They've just recently announced finishing up the merger with Barcelle, combining that land position with Goldline. What has you attracted to this story in Sweden focused on gold? Yeah, so the, the Goldline shares, they're in a trading hold right now because the deal with Barcelona has gone through. So they're going to be converted to Barcelona shares. I mean, I wrote up, I think it was Goldline or Barcelona some time ago. And it's like I just pointed out that, hey, in my, in my green case scenario or a blue case scenario, these two companies would merge because then you would have the most significant gold asset in Sweden located in the gold line belt, which belonged to Barcelona and partner with Agnico. And gold line would bring around 100 kilometers of strike within the gold line belt. And I mean, 100 kilometers of strike in a, you know, a belt like that, that, that's enough almost for 10 juniors. I mean, uh, depending on what jurisdiction we're in. was like, this is a tier one jurisdiction, obviously, it's Sweden, very rich history of mining, largest, you know, mining hub in Europe, and Europe uh, needs a lot of metals going forward, because we don't have too many mines. So it's like, now that's complete. So you have more, that's what I like, like the picture of you have a margin of safety, they will own 45% of the Barcelona deposit and have 100 kilometers of strike. And then they also bring in, Goldline will bring in uh, a gold resource in Finland and some other projects around Sweden. So what I hope is going to happen is that somehow they're going to make a deal like old Barcelona tried to make with uh, Agnico a few years back, where Goldline will uh, become operator. So they can control the news flow from that property because I think there's more gold there and in that case I I think it could get really fun when we get into a gold bull because then you would have better news flow you would have margin of safety being again it's like a multi-million ounce gold deposit in Sweden and Sweden has some of the lowest cost mines in the world and 100 kilometers of exploration potential so you get that let's say hybrid play where you have you're buying gold in the ground, so you have beta from that, and you have 100 kilometers of, of a gold belt to explore in a tier one jurisdiction, which may or may not become a bubble if, you know, Thomas Kaplan is correct that, the, you know, in the future, the world is going to be so chaotic that, let's say, the better jurisdictions will get a premium. So it's like, do I know any of that will happen? No, I just think it's, uh, in, in my opinion, it's a good bet. And I mean, since it's in Sweden, it's just very, very cool for me personally. I own a lot of shares and and Borsle, uh, I think they're still a sponsor, so twice biased. Well, let's also talk about two other companies. I guess we could kind of talk about them separately or together. I'll just throw them out to you. And that is in Sweden, there's also some big news about how the government could be changing its tune on uranium extraction in the country. They've already started changing their tune as far as how they're looking at nuclear energy. And that's led into a discussion, well, then why don't we get our own domestic supply of uranium? There are huge uranium reserves in Sweden. 
And there are two companies really working on the uranium story in Sweden, District Metals under the ticker DMX on the TSXV and Moss and Gold under the ticker MAW on the TSXV. Actually, when I first started looking at Moss and Gold almost I, over a decade ago, they were a uranium company before they were a gold company. Well, now that uranium in Sweden is coming back alive again, so are the interest in these two companies' properties in Sweden. What do you make of that environment going on with the uranium interest in Sweden, Eric? I think this goes to show, first of all, we got a, a right-leaning government a while back. And it's like, the, the funny thing is the moratorium was put on uranium in 2018. So, I mean, after 2018, there was no point in in even, you know, touching anything, uh, any sort of polymetallic deposit or, or especially not a pure uranium deposit in Sweden because it's like, you can't do anything with it anyway. But now it's like lately there's, Almost, I was going to say, bombardment of like news about nuclear energy and the need for uranium, etc. So, I mean, it, it really feels like, you know, the powers that be, let's say, they're massaging people to like, okay, you know, showing the need for uranium, how much nuclear is needed. And especially given the winter we had in Sweden, I think it was two winters ago uh, when, you know, the electricity prices went sky high. And now we're obviously in Sweden, we're talking about, you know, building more nuclear reactors and stuff like that. And, and I've also recently in Swedish business media seen articles about mining and mining stocks. And it's like, that's very surprising given the piss poor sentiment, you know, in it globally. And in Sweden, it's not really a big thing. But to me, it looks like Sweden is, I don't know, intentionally, let's say, putting out some reports and media articles, whatever, to, again, warm up the population that's like, hey, you know, get excited about mining. We're going to need mining. And in district's example, they just staked even more ground around their alum shale deposits in Sweden. So they now have, you know, huge projects, including the largest undeveloped uranium deposit on Earth. So it's like, that's what I like with <laughs> this play for example, and Mawson, it's like, it's more of an optionality play in the sense that, yes, have we already seen the, let's say, bottom in uranium? Yeah, that might have been, I don't know, two, one, two years ago or something like that. Uh, and I'm not, you know, too up to date when it comes to uranium, but it's like, well, I just look at, you know, some of the market caps and, and the way I see it is like, hey, I think there's a pretty good likelihood they're going to lift the moratorium. And in that case, I think these assets are going to be worth something in the eyes of the market because it's again, it's like the, the, the largest undeveloped uranium deposit. It's like it, it doesn't get more beta than that. And district has like a 30 million market cap. Plus they have all the you know base metal projects and the deal with Bolid. And so I like that from a risk reward perspective for several different reasons. And the interesting thing with Moss and Gold is that they have a lot of shares. They own around 51% of Southern Cross in Australia, which have made a gold discovery. And I think they're trading at over a 200 million market cap or something, uh, if you account for all the shares out there. Uh, and that's pretty impressive. So obviously they're on to something in the eyes of the market. And I just started, you know, putting together a you know quick spreadsheet and see, okay, what is the shareholdings worth in Southern Cross, because they're planning to distribute them to the shareholders of Moss and Gold. So it's like, I don't know exactly where it's trading at today, but I started buying some shares again. I owned Moss and before, like a few weeks ago, because it was literally trading 
in Canada, Mawson was trading for less than their shareholding in Southern Cross was worth, and they also have staked pretty much according to them every single uh, conventional uranium deposit or or prospect in Sweden. Plus, they have a gold project in Sweden as well. So in, again, it's like I, I don't know what to think about uranium per se, but it's like if I can get those that optionality for free, I mean, worst case scenario at face value, I get my money back already in Southern Cross. And then I get a free optionality on all the conventional uranium deposits in Sweden plus their gold project. And they have like five, six million in cash. So it was simply trading at a, it was even trading at a discount to their Southern Cross holdings for a while. So it's like, hey, I mean, it's not like anything is guaranteed, but is that a cheap bet? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's an interesting point on both companies, Eric, because with District Metals, they have all of the lead and zinc and silver and polymetallic deposits with Bolidin and other 100% owned projects, in addition to the uranium thesis. And even their uranium project is polymetallic and has a lot of other metals in the mix. And with Mawson, you're getting the Southern Cross gold exposure, that 51%, but you're also getting the gold project in Sweden and the uranium project as a kicker for less than what the shares in the Southern Cross are even worth in their underlying market cap. So both of them have upside kickers compared to not just the uranium, but all the other metals and projects they have exposure to. So definitely something to keep an eye on in Sweden. And with all three companies, with the Barcelli Gold Line merger, with District Metals and with Mawson, it just shows that Sweden is back on the map again, as far as a jurisdiction that's getting more serious about mineral extraction. So appreciate you highlighting that in your own backyard, Eric. If people like getting Eric's thoughts, definitely check him out over at Twitter. Check him out at CEO.ca or check him out over his, at his website, thehedgelesshorseman.com. As always, Eric, looking forward to our next conversation. The same. Also, I own shares of all three companies and District and Barcelona are sponsors. So consider me twice biased and do your own due diligence. <laughs>